0: From cereal to yogurt to beer, anything you consume has a barcode on it, and it probably has a sticky label that contains the nutrition information. It also has a use-by date, or a best-before date, applied by something like a thermal inject printer. If a company's making a food product, they may weigh it. They might also put it through a metal detector to make sure nothing harmful has ended up in it and the pallets of those products before they leave the warehouse are also marked perhaps with rfid tags so they can be tracked to their destinations these coding and labeling systems underpin modern food safety and logistics the benefits are enormous it means higher quality and safer items to eat There's a company called Matthews in Australia that specializes in intelligent identification and inspection systems for its manufacturing customers across Australia and New Zealand. At its core, it's a technology business. Its package code management platform is called IDSnet. The company's mascot is a colorful chameleon named Albert, whom it says is emblematic of its adaptability. Mark Dingley is Matthew's CEO, and he spent his entire career at the business. He started in customer service in the early 90s after university and has done at least a half dozen other roles before becoming its CEO. Mark has a saying that sums up the company's business. No code means no product.
1: I suppose our enduring purpose is that uh, we help uh, the makers and movers um, y- you know, uh, get their products to their consumers. Uh, safely and efficiently uh, as uh, as possible. Uh, you know, we're heavily in Australia, we're heavily involved in the food and beverage uh, industry and manufacturing. Uh, so we keep the production line uh, in 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 some ways uh, uh, moving. And and uh, no code means no product.
0: In February two thousand twenty, Mark received a call at six thirty in the morning from a Matthews IT support person. It was a call that was to permanently change the company.
1: Uh, so it was my uh, I, our IT support uh, person that uh, called our network support person that called and uh, and to advise me that we had been breached and that uh, a cyber attack and a ransomware attack had been taken had taken place and, and was currently taking place uh, at which point at that time uh, most of our servers, uh that uh, our on-prem servers had been uh, had been encrypted with ransomware
0: Matthews is just one of dozens of businesses hospitals school districts and other organizations in Australia that have been infected with ransomware like many other nations, Australia has been on the receiving end of what has been a devastating evolution in crime. Organized cybercriminals have been able to profit from holes in IT security, infiltrating systems, encrypting files, and then demanding a ransom. Australia has been strategizing with other nations to figure out how to blunt the scale and damage. The cybercriminal underground around ransomware has been growing in strength and impunity. Australia has openly said that it will be using its offensive cyber capabilities against ransomware gangs, the effects of which will be closely watched. But in the meantime, companies like Matthews, which is a successful medium-sized business, are bearing the brunt of this assault. However... Matthew's battle against its ransomware infection is a tale of resilience and strength, and the following is how it recovered and grew stronger. This is The Ransomware Files. I'm Jeremy Kirk. In this podcast mini series, I'm going to talk with those who have navigated their way through a ransomware incident, hear what they learned, and what tips they can pass on to others. No ransomware infection is ever welcomed, but there's invaluable knowledge gained. There should be no shame in getting infected, but it's important to share the lessons. This episode of The Ransomware Files is sponsored by CoFence. CoFence is the leading provider of phishing protection, detection, and response solutions. It's the only company to combine a global network of 30 million people reporting phishing attempts with advanced AI-based automation to find and stop phishing attacks. Stay on until the end of this episode to hear me speak with Tanya Dudley, who's a strategic security advisor at CoFence, and we discuss ransomware, phishing, and how to protect yourself from a breach. Ben Nickel is a supply chain logistics manager for Matthews. He's the son of Lester Nickel, who founded Matthews around 40 years ago. Ben's brother, Matt, also works for the company as its southern regional sales manager. Growing up, they knew their dad worked in product labeling, but Ben says there was no expectation at that time that they would become involved.
2: We never considered it a family business, of course. We just, uh, that was just dad's work. Um, it it, it became more a family business, uh, back in the the late or the mid 90s late 90s um when he um when he then took over the uh the australian uh subsidiary for the for the matthews business and um but he never thought it was a family business then either nor did we and we never thought there was any entitlement to start working in the business uh, it just sort of uh it happened that way
0: Ben joined in the late '90s as an inventory controller, and that evolved into an IT manager role.
2: It gave me a good, state, a good background into uh, how the IT systems work.
0: The morning that the ransomware was deployed, an external IT consultant who works with Matthews alerted the company. The ransomware had tripped monitoring software, but the monitoring software didn't signal the alarm until the services started going offline. So Ben, when you heard ransomware, the word ransomware, what went through your mind at that point? Oh, it's, it's
2: horrible. I mean, we've, we've been through it once before.
0: Um, uh, not to the same extent,
2: It was, uh, but it, it, it had a big impact on the business. Um, it destroyed all our uh, files on a file server.
0: As Ben notes, this, in fact, was the second time Matthews had been hit by ransomware. The first incident happened several years prior. In that incident, Matthews was able to recover from backups. This time around, however, was going to prove a lot more difficult.
2: They um, they encrypted all of our files on all of our servers. Every server was impacted. They didn't get into our workstations. It was just the servers. They uh, then... Uh, just wiped the backups. They just, they, they, I think they formatted the disks or did something like that. So they just wiped them. They didn't encrypt the data. So um, day one was obviously really hectic for us. So I got into the office because we were locked out of the system. I couldn't log in remotely, which I was always able to do. So we could only log in in the office in our own network, but we stopped the Wi-Fi. We, we stopped everyone actually being able to log into the system in case there was still... Uh, residual in there that might affect the local pcs as well so um, i was still able to rdp into uh, a couple of the servers that i wanted left up and i just wanted to have a look at what uh, what the impact was and once i got into the sql databases and saw they were all encrypted i knew we we're in a lot of trouble um, so it, it wasn't it wasn't looking good for us um, it, it is a a, a, a real um uh, a moment of a reality, you say, well, now how can we how can we recover from this? I mean, if we've lost everything and our backups, how can the business survive?
0: The type of ransomware that infected Matthews is called PISA. It's a variant of the mespinosa strain of ransomware, which first surfaced around October 2018. PISA purportedly stands for Protect Your System, Amigo. Files encrypted by it carry the PYSA extension. After being infected, some victims have reported seeing a ransom note that says, What to tell my boss? Protect your system, amigo. It also has cheekily referred to victims as so-called partners. The security company Palo Alto Networks says PISA has asked for ransoms as high as $1.6 million and actually received one payment that amounted to $470,000 alone. The group is known to first steal data from victim's systems, and it's picky about what it looks for. Paiza will dig around a victim's network to figure out if there's enough valuable data that the victim might pay a ransom to retrieve. Paiza and its affiliates will do this by searching for files with specific keywords such as clandestine or fraud or SSN, short for social security number. It may then publish the confidential data in order to embarrass victims and get them to pay. It's known as the double extortion. Not only have the attackers encrypted the data, but they're also threatening to publicly release it. This is what happened to Matthews, and it's believed Matthews may be one of the first Australian organizations to be affected by the double extortion. In March 2021, PISA's activity was the subject of an FBI warning. The FBI said ransomware was increasingly being unleashed against higher education institutions, K-12 schools, and seminaries in the US and UK. It's also affected U.S. government and other government entities, private companies, and healthcare organizations. The FBI says PISA gets into organizations using methods such as compromising remote desktop protocol credentials or sending phishing emails. Once inside an organization, PISA will use tools such as the Advanced Port Scanner and the Advanced IP Scanner to scout out how a network is configured. Then, like other groups, it installs open-source tools such as PowerShell Empire, the still-useful but aging post-exploitation toolkit, and other penetration testing tools such as Kodiak and Mimikatz. Paiza is a ransomware as a service group, which means that it allows other cybercriminals known as affiliates to use its software for a slice of the ransoms paid. When the ransomware was launched against Matthews, Paiza didn't overtly ask for a sum in a virtual currency like Bitcoin. The group typically prefers to start negotiations over email, so it gave Matthews instructions for how to contact it. So how did Paiza get in? A forensics investigation and audit later showed the attackers gained entry after an employee's device was infected with malware following a click within a malicious email. The attackers had been inside Matthews Systems for weeks prior to launching the ransomware. They were lurking, learning, and collecting administrator credentials. Eventually, Mark says the attackers were able to leapfrog into its data center and then into its backups.
1: Somehow they found you know admin passwords they were able to uh, get in and uh, monitor people uh, monitor people, monitor passwords and, and got an admin uh, got into access from from that one entry yeah just just played the, the waiting game and uh, did enough to, to find the admin and once they had admin passwords they were, you know were able to bounce around our servers and, and out into our own you know private data center where our backups were stored and literally wipe them out.
0: After Paiza's presence was known, the senior leadership team of Matthews came together. One of the most important actions at this point was establishing a communication channel with internal and external stakeholders. Another pressing task was to figure out exactly what data the company still had that either wasn't encrypted or deleted. Fortunately, about a year before the latest attack, Matthews had purchased a cyber insurance policy. And as part of that policy, Ben says the insurer dispatched a law firm that coordinates incident response and recovery.
2: Fortunately, only 12 months, I think earlier, um, our CFO, uh, he recommended that we uh, take out cyber security insurance. So, that was one of our first uh, calls in that that morning when we, we we couldn't we couldn't do anything. Our systems were down, so we made the call to our security insurance company, and uh, they put us in touch with some uh, lawyers who had um, specialists in this area, and they um, so they they assigned a um, cyber incident response manager, who then began to to roll out the process of what we need to do and in what order and and how we needed to do it, and then they put us in touch with. Um, Cybersecurity specialists who actually go into your system.
0: First and foremost, Ben says that Matthews needed to make sure it still wasn't exposed to the attackers, and that the ransomware wasn't going to cause further damage.
2: Once we had an operational system, we had to make sure that 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 um, that vulnerability wasn't there, and we're just sort of um, chasing our tails. And if we did recover anything, that it wasn't going to be destroyed as well. So we had to engage these partners. Um, Now the the cyber incident response manager was great because they had a, a, a phased process of what we needed to do for data recovery and then forensic investigation. So um, we, we set up meetings with them uh, on the very first day, um, twice, a, twice a day for a number of weeks. We had it all scheduled in advance just to keep us abreast of you know, where we were at, where our recovery was at, where our communication was at and what we're going to do next. Um, at this point, we didn't know whether we needed to engage with the threat actor or you know, where we were at. So we really needed to um, understand you know, where we were at as a business um, in this recovery process.
0: The fact that Matthews had been infected with ransomware before did help the second time around. After that first incident occurred, the company sought to bolster its data backup and recovery systems. That included an off-site data center along with nightly and weekly backups. Still, the threat actors have been lurking around long enough to figure out how Matthew's backup regime worked. I remember, Ben, you said you had a prior ransomware attack?
2: We'd had one um, a few years back, and uh, not, not to the extent of this one. Uh, we had a simpler system back then. And, uh, and simpler um, uh, uh, softwares, but still it impacted our business. But we were able to recover from that uh, with backups. This one was a lot more um, uh, a lot more impactful because they destroyed not only our live systems, but they got into our backups and they destroyed all the backups. Um, now, we don't know how that happened because their backups, they were connected to our network, but they weren't visible through the file share so somehow they've been they've been able to to navigate around and uh, and find them and uh, and delete those backups
0: luckily there was a last ditch backup one that mark calls the in case of nuclear war one every couple of weeks matthew's made another backup copy on its external drives that was stored in a secure location that was completely unconnected to its network
1: so it it had been that uh, we had completed that process 2 weeks prior to the event uh, two or three weeks prior to that event uh, so uh, at, at the time of the attack all of our online backups were destroyed uh, so uh, effectively uh, our ERP system CRM uh, systems our service management system uh, that were all on-prem at the time uh, were all uh, were all impacted uh, so uh, so we were down for that Friday and again uh, the, the IT team, rolled into action. It was, uh, it was impressive uh, that uh, we lost the Friday, but by the Monday morning we were operational. Um, and uh, yeah, every device was, was basically quarantined. Uh, um, we'd gone through certainly all the servers. We'd, we'd uh, gone out on the weekend and replaced all the servers with new servers uh, and quarantined all the old servers. Uh, even at our data center, that was a big job getting into that data center, but uh, that was uh, yeah we were able to achieve that and quarantine
0: all the uh, infected uh, and servers. The fact that the nuclear backup existed was fortuitous, and to understand why that's important, we have to go back to Matthews's business. Matthews processes about one thousand transactions a day. Matthews counts several possible actions as a transaction. Examples are a service job requested by a customer, an invoice, or just anything that moves through its ERP or CRM systems. The ransomware attack wiped out as many as 20,000 of those most recent transactions, but it still had the older ones, and that was important to resume business continuity. As mentioned before, if a company can't properly label its products, it can't make any products until that's fixed. Ben says they have to have business continuity and keep their customers up and running.
2: We're supplying them with products to keep production lines running for the food and beverage industry and other industries as well. Um, we couldn't, we couldn't not dispatch to our customers. That was too essential to us. So um, once we had the initial backups that were two weeks old up and running, Uh, I set up a staging test environment for our customer service team to manage uh, outbounds for essential uh, dispatches only. So that's part of the communication to our customer. Uh, We said we're going to be offline for a period of time, but it was absolutely urgent that we could transact something because we knew that once that that fresh backup was installed, we would have to migrate that data back across. And we wanted to minimise that workload to do that so um, for the essentials, we had our staging system that was uh, operational for our customer service team and service team to to um, to do work.
0: Mark says that Matthews did go back to pen and paper for a short time while it tried to figure out the missing service jobs.
1: All through this process, you know, my team, the the whole staff, incredible. Um, you know, the the resilience and uh, that they all showed to. You know, just work through everyone working night and day to to pull the data off you know the service team, mapping out all of the service jobs they thought they had. and you know we were just we were back to pen and you know paper and whiteboards mapping out to try and join the dots with you know our service jobs that we had done, making sure that we weren't missing any customers.
0: There was still a two to three week gap in its backups, but then something good happened. Ben says that Matthews initially thought that the cyber criminals had wiped the backups, but those drives were sent off anyway to a data recovery firm. For some reason, the cyber criminals hadn't actually encrypted those drives with ransomware, but instead done some tampering with the boot sector.
2: Yeah, they were USB drives. They weren't, they, they, so they were the drives that they'd, they'd wiped. So they cleaned them out, formatted it, did whatever they did. So we took those out of the USBs, popped them in some bags, and sent them off to the recovery center. And then they do their forensics on those to try and establish what they can recover. And uh, fortunately, they came back that they could recover one of the disks, which was absolutely fantastic. We didn't know how old the data was until we could then get those disks back and mount them. So we did that and found that uh, our ERP system was only uh, four days old, which was great. I mean, from two weeks to four days, we we covered so much data and we were only looking at a three-day period so um, given that's all their financial information that was just magic that we could even get that close Um, we weren't so lucky with our um, service system our service system is a file based system and um, it was seven days old so we had a gap there but it wasn't um, it, it, it was a financial gap. It was more about the, the time and effort that the technicians have put into our customers, and uh, and recouping that money. But um, but having seven days from fourteen days was uh, was great. And um, the service department, they. They keep copies of, um, of, and as we did with the purchasing and sales, uh, when we send confirmations or um, order acknowledgments, we keep copies of those in our emails. So we kind of had a, a way that we could reconstruct this information as time consuming as that might be. So, um, so that, that was good news.
0: The black hole of transaction data had been significantly narrowed. But one gap that remained were records of shipments of equipment that Matthews had recently sent its customers. All of Matthews' sales orders are dispatched to a warehouse. The warehouse puts those orders into a separate system, and then the equipment goes out. That separate system was compromised. But Ben says that each night, Matthews also sends a manifest to a third-party company that manages the consignments. Now, they had backups
2: of all that data, so we could recover that data so we knew Who we'd sent product to, whether it was a transfer, a sales order, a project, and uh, we knew the weights and dimensions, the size, and whether it was dangerous goods or not. So we had an idea of who we'd sent product to and the sales order that we no longer had in our system, but we knew that that was going to correspond to an invoice that we'd already sent the customer. They get sent invoices as we dispatch. So we're sort of well on our way to reconstructing something that resembled a um, a recovery data set that we could work with with our finance team and, uh, and do outbounds to our customers.
0: Matthew's attack came at a time when Australia was in the midst of a quite public ransomware wave. Fisher & Paykel, which is a white goods manufacturer in Australia and New Zealand, was infected with the Nephilim ransomware. The same strain hit Toll Group, which is a major logistics and shipping company, and what was that company's second brush that year with ransomware. Others affected were Blue Scope Steel and Beverage Maker Lion. Ben says that customers of businesses that are affected by ransomware are concerned whether their personal data or confidential information is affected, but they were also really sympathetic and ready to lend a hand.
2: I guess uh, one, of the, one of the things I reflect on at, at the time, this, this happened 18 months ago, so it's uh, it sort of brings back some bad memories. But um, reflecting back, at that time, there was a lot of ransomware uh, incidents happening around the, the globe and in Australia. Uh, I think Toll Logistics was one that had just been hit big time and then they got hit just after us again. So it was very much top of mind for for business. So our communication to our customers, just the reassurance that none of their personal or um, protected data was compromised was was great, Um, but also they were familiar with what ransomware is and they were more sympathetic to us and tried to assist in helping us. I mean, we had to go to our customer and uh, ask for copies of invoices so that we could reconstruct our own data. And they were very forthcoming with that.
0: By the time the attack had occurred, Ben had been getting a lot of unwanted practice reconstructing data. Earlier in the year, the company experienced data corruption problems due to an incompatibility in its VMware software and the SQL version it was using. Ben spent long hours and weekends on an almost weekly basis reconstructing data due to the corruption issues. While frustrating at the time, the experience proved handy when trying to reconstruct the missing data from its ERP product, which was Microsoft Dynamics AX
2: 2012. I was... uh well aware of um, what needed to be done to reconstruct once we got up and running with this ransomware. So, and uh, alongside my uh, company accountant, uh, who's also very experienced in in, uh, the AX, the ERP product in particular, um, we uh, were able to reconstruct the data uh, based on some of the reports that I've already written and uh, and, uh, the data we're getting back from our customers. So we did... um, I mean, we had uh, inventory issues. I mean, that was that was huge. We had to do a full recount of all of the inventory in all of our warehouses. We've got uh, 17 vehicle warehouses plus uh, another five uh, physical warehouses, and uh, and uh, lots of inventory in those warehouses. So, lots of movements had happened in those four days that were missing, three to four days that were missing. So, um, we had to virtualize the inventory that we that we had discrepancies of and then work back from there. So once we started recreating what purchase orders we received, what sales orders we sent, what was invoiced, we then had to um, do the movements within the AX um, journals to uh, account for that. And then we had reconciliations to, to see how close we're getting to the variances.
0: By this point, even just days after the infection was discovered, Matthews was somewhat operational. But it would be four to six weeks before the company was getting close to back to pre-attack activity and a good year before its full network rebuild and revamp was completed did matthews give any consideration to paying the ransom and so it sounds was, like you had no consideration of, of paying these criminals anything
1: uh no well no or, or uh, did you or did
0: you have a think about that i mean how, what was the 6 30
1: on a friday morning <laughs> Yeah, when, you know, when the sky's falling down, I said, you know, it was, it was certainly a consideration in terms of, that was one of the things proposed that was certainly discussed in terms of one of the options, but it was never really seriously uh, looked at after the, you know, you know through the process because, uh, yeah, we didn't really want to go down that path. We had the data, we just had the missing four weeks of data um, and, and upwards of four weeks. And, and really was as the, as the data, as we got those, disks into the hands of the data retrievers and then we were starting to see that we could claw back some of that missing data it was quickly left behind Um, so we weren't we weren't in we weren't in the situation that i know many companies were where they've lost all backups and everything
0: still matthews thought it was ready for an attack but once the full scope of the incident became more clear it quickly realized it wasn't actually ready That kicked off a comprehensive program to improve its IT security readiness, and that has included a host of changes. For example, before the incident, external contractors had access to Matthews systems, but now that type of access is subject to a higher level of security. It also had externally facing websites that didn't require VPN access, which is now the case. It also reset all passwords and put in place multi-factor authentication, which Ben says has already stopped more problems. And another big one, no more remote access through Remote Desktop Protocol, or RDP. And if you remember earlier, that's what the FBI said was one of the main infections. Vectors for PISA.
2: We've got two-factor authentication, and that's saved us. We know that's saved us since our cyber incident, so uh, can't speak highly enough for two-factor. We've also put uh, endpoint protection in um, that uh, replaced our existing Antivirus software, so this not only covers the antivirus, but um, also these ransomware threats and other, other threats that come through that antivirus might not pick up. We don't have access through uh, RDP anymore. It's got to go through VPN, as I, as I said earlier, and uh, we closed all internet-facing websites, external RDP and open ports, made sure all those were closed.
0: Their antivirus platform was replaced with a more comprehensive anti-malware and monitoring platform, more along the lines of an EDR or XDR endpoint software that's in vogue now. Mark says that antivirus software alone isn't enough.
1: The, the reality is AV just doesn't cut it. I think that was the biggest, one of the biggest learnings. Uh, so we have gone to those endpoint solutions and so forth. So, uh, and, and it's all, you know, the AV's integrated in that, but, but AV on its own as we had it just doesn't cut it.
0: Matthews's backup regime was also overhauled. Ben says that included replacing the USB connected drive with NAS drives because they offer better reliability and security.
2: We then revisited our um, IT disaster recovery backup policy and and the separation of our backups from our network was really important. Um, So where we thought we were um, protected by backing up to external drives and uh, they weren't sort of visible on the network. They were still connected to the network. So they were mm-hmm. vulnerable. We found that out the hard way. Now that's, there's a, step, a subnet separation there. We don't no longer have those backups connected to our network directly through the same subnet. So, and, uh, and we've got more rigorous backups as well.
0: It also learned a lesson. It's not just having the backups, but also knowing the right sequence in which that data should be restored to bring systems back online. If that data restoration sequence is wrong, the systems can't be fired up in the correct order. Knowing that correct order influenced how the company now backs up its data, including micro backups that occur on a daily basis. Mark says that testing those backup restoration processes is key.
1: And even our, you know, even our testing of restorations uh, is, is, is now part of our just way of life. You think your restorations work until you come to the stage when you really need them and they don't work. You, you, know, you don't want to find out you've got corruptions when you really need that restoration to kick in. Uh, so yeah. testing your restoration procedure and testing that your restorations actually restore uh, and restore in the way that you in the sequence that you want is a real critical uh, process that people should be working on
0: all told mark estimates it took four to six weeks for Matthews to get up and running but it was 12 months before the company felt like it had completed an information security
1: overhaul the time and, and the stress that it put on the on the people to, to, to recover you know that's that's the biggest hurt and and uh you know, and you just don't get that time back. Um, you know, it's it was 12 months on before I could really say, you know, we're now at a new level. You know, and you know, and and super vigilant uh, in all in all areas of uh, cybersecurity. You know, so it was a long haul.
0: Matthews also has a continuing focus on staff education about malicious emails. Phishing emails and even emails containing malicious links or malware can be notoriously tricky to detect, but education can help employees avoid some of the most obvious traps. Mark says that Matthews now runs monthly mock phishing exercises to keep a refreshed focus on security awareness.
1: We run our own um, uh, fake phishing email testing every month with our staff. We're very transparent with that. Um, because it, it, it is about education and awareness. It is about that uh, level of paranoia that, um, you know, uh, our weakest link is still someone potentially clicking on an email. When we started, we we had some pretty high click-throughs, and 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 these days, uh, you, you know, we're at most months for the last three or four months we're at zero. You know, so so again, the biggest learning is. For any organization is if you're not involving your staff regularly, monthly, um, you're not cyber secure.
0: It's been about 18 months on from when Matthews was infected by PISA. How is Australia as a country now faring against ransomware? In short, like elsewhere in the world, it's been rough. Reese Corbett Wilkins is a partner with the law firm Clyde & Co in Sydney. About a decade ago, Clyde & Co set up a dedicated incident response practice to help organizations through incidents. It works with insurance companies and victims to coordinate incident response, calling on vetted vendors to quickly do tasks such as forensic analysis, project management, and rebuilding systems. Recent estimates that Clyde & Co alone has worked on 300 ransomware-related incidents in Australia over the last two and a half years. That increasing volume of attacks has been elevating the concern about ransomware in Australia.
3: And We've seen a number of high-profile attacks over the last Two and a half years impact uh, significant organisations, much like you've seen in the US and around the world. Um, Australia at the moment is going through uh, an election early next year. And for the first time in in years, uh, cybersecurity has become a political issue. Um, It's now elevated to the top of the list, critically because we can see the financial impact of these ransomware events are impacting our economy as a whole, particularly as we come out of covid So the government is taking this up as a national security issue.
0: And this year, the ransomware incidents seem to rise to new levels. Nine Entertainment, which is a major broadcaster, saw its Sunday programming disrupted by ransomware. Also, there was the ransomware incident at JBS Meats, which is the world's largest meat supplier. Its ransomware incident affected slaughtering operations in four Australian states as well as in North America. The Australian government is making moves, too. In October, it proposed a ransomware action plan. There are lots of interesting bits in the plan, but one large standout is the reporting requirement. The plan would require businesses with more than $10 million in annual turnover to report a ransomware attack. The opposition Labour Party, however, is pushing for more. They want companies to report if that also included paying a ransom. The government says the reporting requirement will help it better understand the ransomware threat and support victims. If it comes into effect, it would be a world first. There are other initiatives as well. The Australian Federal Police, which is the equivalent of the FBI, is creating a multi-agency task force called Operation Orca that's specifically dedicated to fighting ransomware. The plan also calls for Australian law enforcement to be able to track and seize ransomware gangs' funds, which are usually in virtual currencies such as Bitcoin or Monero. Recently, Australia's Secretary for Home Affairs, Mike Pizzullo, said ASD's offensive cyber experts are already hunting for ransomware gangs every night. There's also another piece of legislation that is tangential to ransomware. Legislation is before parliament that would require critical infrastructure providers to have minimum standards of security. Reese says that the government wants to ensure that critical infrastructure providers, which are the backbone of the Australian economy, can withstand attacks without lives and livelihoods at risk as a result of a cyber incident.
3: So what they're looking to do is introduce new legislation, which does two things. It significantly expands the definition of uh, critical infrastructure providers um, to include a lot more industries that previously weren't covered by this. Effectively, anyone, any organization that um, can be seen to uh, support the national infrastructure of Australia and food and security and water supply chains.
0: There's also another prong that could prove somewhat controversial. It's called a step in power, and as Reese says, would allow the government to take over defense of an organization during a cyber incident.
3: Um, But secondly, uh, they're also looking to introduce step-in powers for the government to be able to actually step in and take over the active defence of an incident if the government deems it appropriate to do so. And critical to whether or not the uh, government will be able to exercise that power will be organisations demonstrating not only capability and competence, but also giving confidence to the government that they're taking appropriate steps. So it's going to be a significant Uh, piece of legislation uh, because it will effectively put organisations on notice that they need to be able to be better able to respond to these incidents and also cooperate with the government during a time of incident um, or else uh, suffer the very distinct possibility that the government can uh, take over defence operations.
0: These days, Matthews is in a much different place. And in some ways, Australia is too. Like other countries, it's fed up with ransomware. The launch of a plan to tackle it is a start, and it follows similar moves in the United States. But as it's been pointed out, there's no one action that's going to eliminate ransomware. Until governmental action, diplomacy, and policing catch up, businesses need to do their best to put on their best defense. Mark says there's one step every organization should take.
1: First and foremost, do get an external audit. Do a penetrate, do the penetration tests. Uh, find a find a, a very good cybersecurity business that that, that specialises in this area of um, you know of uh, of the external audits. Do your penetration tests and see how robust or fragile you really are. You know, so first and foremost, if you haven't done uh, an external audit and, and penetration tests, that is that is your first one because that will show the level of how really your business is exposed and then you take it from there.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of The Ransomware Files, please share it on your social media platform of choice. If you'd like to participate in this project, please get in touch with me. My DMs are open on Twitter, and I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm looking for other people, organizations, and companies that can share their unique experiences for the benefit of all until ransomware hopefully becomes a thing of the past. See you next time. Next up is an interview with our sponsor for this episode, CoFence. Thanks for sticking around for the sponsored portion of the Ransomware Files. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Tanya Dudley, who is a strategic security advisor with CoFence. Thanks for dropping by, Tanya.
4: Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Happy to be here.
0: So you had to listen to this uh, episode, too, the Ransomware Files. What stands out to you about it?
4: You know, I did. And one of the things that really kind of stood out to me in the beginning was I'm impressed that... Um, that he's able to talk about the actual incident itself. um, The fact that they learned from their first episode. Um, It's not uncommon when you suffer a major incident like that, that you prepare for, they are going to come back. They're not going to, um, you know, it's not a one and done. You know, if they, if they understand your infrastructure and, and your weak points, then there's a good chance they could be coming back. So I was, I was prepared. I was impressed with the uh, amount of how much how seriously they took it the first time and took action to mitigate or even being able to understand when it happened the second time. They were much more prepared.
0: And as we've seen, you know, with this, what kicked it all off was a malicious email, unsurprisingly. And that's the business that CoFence is in is stopping, uh, helping stop phishing. What are the trends that you've seen around that, and what's the threat landscape like?
4: Sure. So especially when it comes to ransomware. So we, what we observe is that there are a series of tools that may be delivered throughout um, a time period before the actual ransomware is delivered. And the ransomware doesn't typically come from a phishing email. What is delivered in phishing email is maybe a key logger. Maybe it's starting with a credential phish to gain some access to cr- credentials. Um, maybe it's then to deploy a key logger or a remote, remote access tool, just as, as he, as he mentioned, um, because then, you know, they can get their foothold, they do their discovery, look to see, um, you know, navigate their environment to see where, where is the sensitive data, as he quite also mentioned, exfiltrating training that data to be able to hold that, um, to get that ransom payment. So, um, a lot of what you talked about are those trends that we're seeing when it comes to, um, to phishing email. So uh, over, you know, nearly 60% of the phishing emails that we observe are credential fish, right? So they're going after those credentials so they can further um, a foothold or just to, you know, gain access to their environment or even some of their other hosted cloud environment to, to get access to data
0: and so, tell me about a little bit of the technology. You know, why do some phishing emails get through? I, I seem to have the opposite problem right now with my—and I won't say my my email provider—but uh, right. it seems to uh, nine out of ten seem to be legitimate emails that it's catching rather than the fishes. What's right. going on in the background these days?
4: So, you know, organizations have—you know—years ago it was called a spam, a spam filter, right? And then they understood, oh, we need to add some controls on this. How we can how can we just stop the phishing from even getting through? How would we just block all this stuff? But, you know, predators they're smart, right? They understand what organizations are doing. And so they're constantly tuning and changing their tactics to bypass those controls, you know, whether it be the uh, the secure email gateway, um, the web proxy, you know, anything that they can do, they want to land in that inbox to be able to, to get through. We see them, you know, changing up the different file attachments types, even though we see fewer and fewer file attachments being delivered via an email, um, that's really where they're leveraging those cloud services to host their malware. Um, but changing up those tactics to be able to land in that inbox, even making their messages, you know, not only are they learning your infrastructure, they're, all, they're learning your business process. So they understand that if I want you to interact with this message, I'm going to send a financial related term, um, uh, topic, right? So or theme, is it going to be you know, here's your invoice or here's your payment, your past due on this, you know, in this invoice, or here's a quote, or here's the wiring instructions um, that you need to open, you know, so they're learning these things that, oh, if I send these, you know, things that are related to a legit business process, you're more likely to engage with it. Um, Again, it comes down to the tactics. They're trying to bypass those controls.
0: Yes, absolutely. And we've seen like in this episode, Mark Dingley, who's the CEO of Matthews, the company that was affected, um, they put a real emphasis on employee training to, to try to train employees to be able to identify things that are suspicious and potentially be a little bit more aware of what they click on. How important would you say these days is employee training versus technological solutions? Is it a mix of both?
4: Yeah, I think it's a balance. Right. So, you know, especially if you haven't um, done any type of, of training, starting with phishing simulation, like we know that we've all done these CBTs and learning modules over the years. And so we know that's not working because phishing email is still getting by, you know, employees are still interacting with it. So if you can simulate that fish um, in their inbox, the same place where they would experience it, then you're more likely to be able to get them to to learn from that experience um, and then giving them the the tools to report that because not only like we've, you know, spent the, all these years, you know, helping them identify what are the, you know, what are the cues about this message, you know, makes it, you know, is it real or a fish, but giving them that, um, that tool by giving them a, a button to make it easy to report that message, to keep the whole message intact, to get it off to the security team, you know, getting the security team, the tools they need to be able to, Um, mitigate and identify those um, real fish. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So really just, you know, helping your employees understand how to identify a fish, what is a fish and then giving them the tools to be able to report that. Because like we just talked about um, threat actors are constantly changing their tactics. They're making those messages look very legitimate. You know, those credentials they have stolen, they've also are scraping those um, inboxes for legit emails you know, one of the, th- the things that we always used to um, mention was to look for grammar and, you know, spelling errors. That's not the case these days because of, you know, the legitimate emails that they're able to scrape. So, again, it's, it's a balance, but definitely um, training is, is a critical piece of that to be able to, you know, enable your users to help you identify those, um, those things getting through.
0: And I think I read something a few years ago that said email is the most dangerous application, and I think it, it feels to me like it still holds true today when you look at um, how attacks start.
4: Absolutely, and you know it's it's funny when I used to um, work in a secu- as a security architect. I used to have long discussions with the the email architect that sat on the you know on the IT side of the house. We had this discussion about, you know, email is for communication. It wasn't designed to be the business process, you know, for sending through attachments and files and and things, right? But now we've turned it into this thing that we live live and breathe by every day just to do business.
0: Excellent. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for those insights.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having us.